0: Twelve lectures, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 11, entitled The Dream World as a Transition Between the Physical-Natural World and the World of Ethical Considerations, given in Dornach on the 22nd of September, 1923. If we want to integrate what we've learned about the stages of the path to the spiritual world, into our knowledge of ordinary life, then we have to be able to properly evaluate the three states of consciousness that humans experience in their normal lives. We've already described these three states of consciousness as the waking, the sleeping, and the dream state. We also know how the state of wakefulness is really only possible for human beings in their thinking, in their ideas, and that feelings, which when we experience them seem different from the dream state, are nevertheless the same basic condition. We experience feelings in the same indeterminate way that we experience dreams. And even the way they're linked together is similar to dreams. In dreams, one image leads to the next. The dream isn't concerned with how things are connected to the world outside, they have their own coherence basically feelings are just the same and if in normal consciousness someone's feelings were the same as their thinking they'd be a terribly unemotional person a dreadfully dry and glacial human being in the world of ideas when we're fully awake we have to pay attention to what we normally see as logic we wouldn't get very far in real life if we always felt everything the way we think of it. Then, as we've often mentioned, there's the will, which emerges out of the hidden depths of our existence. We can imagine it, but its real essence, how it lives and moves in the human organism, remains unknown or unconscious for us, just as do the experiences we have in sleep. If human beings experienced what the will actually does, they'd be extremely disconcerted. The will is actually a process of combustion, of consumption. If we always had to experience how we consume our own organism in the process of willing, and how we have to replenish what it has consumed with food or with sleep, this would not be a pleasant process for our ordinary consciousness. In a certain sense, we can juxtapose the images that arise when we're awake in the human realm of feeling with waking dreams and with the dream world when we're asleep or half-asleep. At first, we experience these images as if they don't belong to our I capital, but to the world outside. People who are dreaming experience the dream images so strongly as being of the outside world, that they can sometimes see themselves in their dreams. But what especially interests us in these dream images today is that when we're just going about our normal lives, one experience follows the other. In a dream, however, all these experiences are mixed up together. The dream pays scant attention to what human beings experience in their waking state as the chronology of events. The dream is a poet with all kinds of fancies. One philosopher said that he himself often dreamt that he'd written a book, that in reality he hadn't, but in the dream he believed he'd written it, and that it was better than all the books he'd written so far. However, he dreams that the manuscript is lost. He can't find it. He's mislaid it. Now he's running from one desk drawer to the next. He searches everywhere but he doesn't find the manuscript. In the dream, he has the uneasy feeling that he's lost the manuscript of his best book, and maybe he'll never find it again. With this uneasy feeling, he wakes up. Of course, this is a crushing dream for the philosopher I'm thinking of, who had written many books. He published so many that once, when I was a visitor in his house, as his wife was also present, she said to me, "'Yes, my husband writes so many books,' that the one always competes against the other. In this philosopher's house, there was always a remarkable sense of the practical, so that once when I was visiting with a publisher, I was irritated because I wanted to discuss epistemological problems with him. Now, I brought this publisher with me, although really he'd just latched on to me, and the philosopher started in the right way. As you're in the business, can you tell me how many copies of this book or that... I've forgotten which, are available in the antiquarian bookshops. So he was a practical person. I'm not looking down on him. I just want to show you something typical of him. Somebody else would dream something different, which would have its own particular fantasy world. As we all know, dreams don't follow our outside reality, but create their own interconnections. On the other hand, we all know, too, that our dreams are intimately connected to what we really are as human beings. In fact, many dreams are really reflections of the insides of our bodies, and we weave into dreams what really is intimately connected to us. Gradually we can become aware of how the dream organizes events in its own way. If we look at it in all clarity, then we can slowly realize that it is we ourselves who live in these dreams but we live in these dreams just at those points where we're either leaving the physical and etheric bodies or when we're coming back into them. Dreams actually take place in these transition periods between waking and sleeping, sleeping and waking. I've often given examples which show that the most important part of dreams happens mainly during waking up or falling asleep. I've shown some typical examples of this. You'll remember. A student dreams that two students are standing at the door of the lecture hall. One says something to the other, which, according to their code of behavior, demands satisfaction. So there has to be a duel. He dreams it all colorfully, going out to the duel, choosing seconds and so on, right up to the actual shooting. He hears the bang just as he wakes up, but it transforms itself into the bang of a chair, which he has knocked over onto the floor. Just at this moment he wakes up. The chair falling over has triggered the whole dream. The dream has taken place at the moment of waking up. It only seems as if it's taken time because it has its own time in itself. Some dreams last so long, according to their own inner time scale, that we can't even have slept as long as the dreams seem to last. Still, dreams are intimately connected to what we experience internally as human beings, inner experiences, right down even to the physical body. People of other ages knew this very well, and for a certain kind of dream, you can read this in the Bible, the ancient Jews said, quote, God has punished you in the kidneys, close quote. So they knew that a certain kind of dream was related to the kidney function. On the other hand, you only need to read something like "Title: The Seerus of Prevorst, and you'll see how, from a dream, someone actually describes their own organ deficiency, someone with a particular disposition, so that a sick organ is symbolized in mighty images. This can also lead to the remedy appearing in the dream as well as the sick organ. In ancient times they even made use of this, so that the sick person was induced to reveal the cure in their own dream interpretation. We should also study the practice of temple sleep, in relation to this. When we look at the whole relationship of the dream to external events, then we have to say the dream is a protest against the laws of nature. From waking up until going to sleep, we live according to natural laws. The dream doesn't bother with the laws of nature. In a sense, the dream thumbs its nose at natural laws. What makes up natural law for the external physical world isn't the law of dreams. Dreams contain in themselves a lively protest against natural law. If on the one side we ask nature what is true, it will answer in natural laws. If on the other side we ask the dream what is true, it won't answer in natural laws. If someone judges a dream by the laws of nature, they would have to say that the dream lies, which it does in this ordinary sense. But the dream gets close to the supersensible. The spiritual in human beings, even though the dream images belong to the unconscious, as we would call it abstractly. And we can't judge the dream properly if we don't know that it comes close to the inner spiritual reality of human beings. However, this is already something that our age can barely acknowledge. People want the dream to be abstract, they only want to evaluate it on the basis of its inherent fantasy. They don't want to see that in a dream we have something that's related to the innermost part of the human being. For if the dream is related to the innermost part of the human being and also protests against the laws of nature, then this is a sign that the inner human being itself protests against the laws of nature. I would ask you to take this very seriously. When we get to know human beings, we see that their innermost part protests against natural laws. What does this mean? When today natural scientists observe the laws of nature, which are outside, as if they were inside the laboratory, their scientific thinking does the same with human beings and treats them as if these natural laws were inside them, or better, would extend to the inside of the human being, underneath their skin, so to speak. But this isn't the case at all. The dream, with its repudiation of natural laws, is much closer to the inner human being than are these laws themselves. The innermost part of the human being doesn't act or function according to natural law. The dream, which in its composition is a reflection of the inner human being, bears witness to this. And for someone who understands this, it's simply absurd to believe that in the heart or in the liver. The same laws apply as in outside nature. To outside nature, logic applies. But the dream belongs to the inner human being, and whoever calls a dream fantastic would by the same token have to call the inner human being fantastic. They could rightfully say that. For if we look at how the inner human goes on in earthly life, between birth and death, where from one side sickness appears, from the other good health, then this is much more similar to a dream than to any external logic. But our modern thinking lacks this way of approaching the innermost human being, because it's completely wrapped up in what it can observe in outside nature or in the laboratory. People want to find the same phenomena in human beings, too. It's extremely important that we learn to recognize how science treats the physical processes in the human body. We know, for example, that basically there are human proteins, fats, carbohydrates and salts. How do scientists treat this? They analyze the proteins and find a certain percentage of oxygen, of nitrogen, of carbon. They analyze the fats and carbohydrates and so on. We now know how much of these substances are in each component. But you will never learn from such an analysis How, for example, the potato has influenced European culture. There is no reference to this influence of potatoes in the European diet on the culture, because in this analysis you'll only find how carbon, nitrogen, and so on are divided between the various foodstuffs. However, you'll never find how rye, for example, is digested by the forces of the abdomen but that potatoes use the upper forces, including those of the brain, so that when someone eats a lot of potatoes, they have to use their brain power to digest them and consequently lose brain power for thinking. It's precisely in such things that we can see how neither modern materialistically minded science nor contemporary theological thinking even come near the truth. Science describes the foodstuffs as I would describe a watch. Silver is extracted from the silver mine in such and such a way. Then the silver is loaded onto vehicles and brought into town, and so on. But when we reach the watchmaker, that's the end of it. We don't go looking into his workshop. Then we describe the dial of the watch, which is made of porcelain, and again we finish up at the entrance to the watchmaker's workshop. This is what modern scientists do with foodstuffs, they analyze them, and their results give us no information about the significance of those foodstuffs for the human organism. Despite all this analysis, it makes a great difference whether we eat the fruit of a plant as with rye or wheat, or whether we eat the tuber as with potatoes. The human organism digests tubers quite differently from fruits or seeds. So we can actually say that this way of thinking doesn't understand material existence. Thus, materialism is a worldview which doesn't even know matter and its effects. We need the light of spiritual science in order to really understand matter. This is why the materialistically minded say that anthroposophy is a spiritual fantasy. Then there are those who have theosophy or theology and want to stick with a kind of reduced spirit, which never really creates anything, which never gets as far as actually revealing how it influences material processes. They say anthroposophy is materialistic because its insights reach right down into the material world. This is how we are attacked on two fronts, both from those who like to treat everything abstractly and from those who like to treat it all as matter. But those who treat everything abstractly don't get to know the spirit, and those who treat everything as matter don't get to know matter. This way of thinking, which is developing more and more in our times, doesn't do justice to humanity. Now, something quite strange has been happening in our spiritual development recently. People can't help but accept the dark side of spiritual life, if they don't want to appear completely contrary. There is something typical about the manner in which people who are totally absorbed in the natural sciences behave when they're confronted with these dark areas of spiritual life, or, at least I'll I'll get to that in a minute, when they can't completely deny it. A memorable example of this is Ludwig Staudenmeier's book titled Magic as an Experimental Science. It's almost as if you would say... The Nightingale as a Machine, but still this book was written in and is typical of our times. How does he go about it? The curious thing about him is that his life drove him to experiment with magic practices on himself. One day, out of some dark twist of fate, he just had to start experimenting on himself. He couldn't deny, for example, that automatic writing existed as he'd seen it for himself. As you know, I don't recommend such things and always point out their dangerous aspects. But when a medium does automatic writing, something quite remarkable happens, and we have to be careful to distinguish truth from fallacy. Now, this writing down of things that the person doesn't have in their head at the moment of writing, this automatic writing, became for Staudenmeier an experimental problem, and he started to try it out himself. And behold, he wrote things that he never would have thought of himself. He wrote the most curious things. Just think, it's quite a surprise for someone whose thinking is completely along the lines of natural science, when they try this automatic writing, thinking nothing will happen. Then, suddenly, the pen, as a power of its own, starts to guide the hand and writes all kinds of things that are a complete surprise. This happened to Staudenmeyer what surprised him most is that the pen was temperamental that it, that's how people describe it just as dreams can be temperamental and it wrote things completely different from what he was thinking from the context we can see that the pen was exerting control and guiding the hand so that it wrote things like you're a bird brain now that's something he definitely wouldn't have been thinking himself and after such things kept happening and the pen had written the most amazing things. Staudmeier asked it Who is really writing here? And the pen replied spirits are writing here, quote. In his opinion this couldn't be true, of course, because spirits don't exist for a scientific thinker. What should he think now? He can't say the spirits have lied to him, so he says it's his subconscious, which is lying all the time. This is disastrous, don't you think, when your subconscious is convinced that you're a bird brain and even writes it down, so you have it, as they say in everyday life, in black and white? Nevertheless, he continued to act as if spirits were speaking, and he asked them why they weren't telling the truth. And they answered, that's just our way. We're the sort of spirits who have to lie to you. That's just our character. We have to lie. This was utterly typical. Now, however, the whole thing begins to get quite awkward, because when it turns out that truth sits up here and down below, they're lying for all they're worth, then that's an extremely uncomfortable situation. And if you're trapped in the world view of natural science, then you can't really come to any other conclusion than that this terrible liar is a part of yourself. Still, Staudenmayer, sticks by his view that it can't be objective spiritual beings speaking, but only ever his subconscious. You can always stuff everything into such general concepts. But it's also characteristic that these spirits didn't guide Staudenmayer's hand to write down a new mathematical proof or the solution to some other scientific problem. It's quite typical that they always write about other things. Staudenmayer already had every reason to be quite beside himself, and then a friend who was a physician advised him to go hunting. Medical advice often takes such a form. A popular prescription is that someone should get married. In this case, it was that he should go hunting, so that he'd be distracted from these crazy ideas. However, even though he did as he was told and went hunting magpies and described in detail how he, he was always on the lookout for the birds, he saw instead all sorts of demonic figures looking down from the trees. For example, on one branch sat a strange figure which was half cat and half elephant, thumbing its nose and sticking its tongue out at him. If he looked away from the trees and at the grass, then he saw not hares, but all kinds of fantastic figures making fun of him. So, now it wasn't only the pen that had written something down, but his power of fantasy was now so animated that instead of magpies, demons and other kinds of specters had started to appear. But again, these must be lies. Basically, what he was seeing was just like in a dream. And if his will had stayed intact, then he might have shot not a magpie, but one of those apparitions, half cat, half elephant. When it then fell off the branch, it would have again transformed itself and become half frog, half nightingale with a devil's tail. In any case, we could say that a world very similar to a dream world has opened itself up to this experimenter, and this world is also a protest against the laws of nature. What would have been the scientific process? He would have lowered his rifle after shooting a magpie, and there would have been a magpie on the ground. However, this didn't happen. Rather, the night or dark side of the spiritual world into which this man had stumbled protested against natural laws. And if he'd stuck to his subconscious theory, this man should at least have said, if all this is subconscious, then my subconscious is protesting against the laws of nature. What is his subconscious actually saying to him? It's conjuring up all kinds of demons, as I've described. So it's saying something very different from what he himself has developed in his thinking. At the least he should come to the conclusion that If the world was organized only according to natural principles, then his inner self couldn't even exist, and he couldn't exist as a human being. Because when this inner self speaks, it speaks very differently from what is contained in natural laws. So, inside us human beings, there is a completely different world than that which is governed by natural laws, a world that even protests against these laws. Anyway, this is the most interesting thing about this experimenter or this experimenting magician who managed to impress quite a number of people. It shows us how it's actually possible with other methods to arrive at a perception of a world that is part of our lives, such as the dream world and all that belongs to it. And examining our ordinary lives in the right way shows us that the mere existence of human beings attests to the fact that bordering the world subject to the laws of nature, another world exists that is free of them. If we look at these things properly, then we have to say that the world we're studying is subject to natural laws, but that bordering it is another world, which has nothing to do with these, where other laws prevail. So if we truly immerse ourselves in the dream world, we enter a realm where the laws of nature lose their power. The fact that with their ordinary consciousness people are only able to perceive something fantastic in the dream world is due to the fact that they don't have the ability to understand the context of what they encounter there. It's people who bring fanaticism into it. But what lives and moves there is a completely different world sphere, one in which we're submerged in dreams. This leads us directly to another point. If we speak to someone who is completely immersed in the conventional wisdom of today, they will say, I study the laws of gravity by observing a falling stone. I can deduce the gravity laws from that. Then I go out into the world and apply these to the stars. This is how they think. Here is the earth, where we find natural laws, and there is the universe. They think that the principles they found on Earth also apply to the Orion Nebula or whatever. Now, as we know, gravity is inversely proportional to the square of the separation distance between the two interacting objects, and it gets weaker and weaker. Light, too, decreases with distance, and, as I've already said, the validity of natural laws also decreases. What is valid as a natural law on Earth is no longer true out there in the universe. It's only true up to a certain altitude. But out there in the cosmos, beyond a certain altitude, those laws apply that we find in dreams. Therefore, people should be clear that when we look out to the Orion Nebula in order to understand it, we shouldn't think as we do in experimental physics. Rather, we should start to dream, as the laws of the Orion Nebula are the principles of dreams. In fact, human beings used to know something of these things, and there are still intimations of this among people who can concentrate in their thinking. There was a naturalist who lived not in the second but in the first half of the 19th century and was Heckel's teacher, Johannes Müller. He was a person who could really concentrate strongly. He went really deeply into whatever he was studying at the time. By being able to do this, to go deeply into something, we can sometimes understand more. This may also have its dark side, as you'll soon see. Johannes Muller was once asked a question during a summer course he was giving. He answered, quote, That's something I only know about in winter, but not in the summer. Close quote. In summer, he was so strongly concentrated on the subject matter of his summer lectures that he freely admitted to only knowing this answer in winter. This Johannes Müller once confessed to something really interesting. He had been dissecting corpses over a long period of time in order to learn more about them. But he doesn't find what he's looking for. However, sometimes he manages to dream about his experiments and then he gains deeper insights. He understands more. This was the first half of the 19th century. At that time, you could still allow yourself such extravagances even if you were a distinguished naturalist. We human beings enter a completely different world, governed by completely different principles, when we dream. And taking this into account, if we followed Johannes Müller, we'd not think about the Orion Nebula as they do in the observatories or in the astronomical institutions, but we'd have to dream about it. Then we'd know more than if we just thought about it. I think this is connected to the fact that shepherds used to sleep in the meadows at night, and they actually dreamt of the stars, and so knew more about them than people of a later age. This is true. In short, whether we go inside ourselves and approach there, the dream world, or out, into the universe, we encounter, as the ancients would say, beyond the world of the zodiac, the realm of dreams. Here we come to a point where we can begin to understand what the Greeks, who still knew of such things, meant when they used the word chaos. I've read all sorts of explanations of what chaos is, but I always found that they were far from the truth. What then did the Greeks mean when they spoke of chaos? They meant the principles that we can glimpse when we dream, or that we have to accept at the outermost perimeters of the universe. These principles, which are not those of natural law, the Greeks attributed to chaos. Yes, they said that chaos begins where the laws of nature are no longer existent, where other principles prevail. For the Greeks, the world is born out of chaos, which means out of a situation that's not governed by natural laws, but is similar to dreams or to the far reaches of the constellation of Orion and the hunting dogs, and so on. Here we come close to a world which is at least heralded in the fantastic but vivid world of dream images. Now, if the physical natural world is here, then we reach a kind of second stream when we submerse ourselves in dreams. Then, however, we arrive at a third stream, which lies beyond the realm of dreams, and has no direct relationship to natural laws whatsoever. The dream world protests against the laws of nature with its images. As for this third realm, it would be ridiculous to say that it conforms to natural laws in any way. It contradicts completely, even audaciously, the laws of nature, for it is intimately connected to human beings. Whereas dreams appear in the living world of images, this third realm manifests at first in the form of the voice of conscience, in our ethical attitudes. If we have on the one hand the world of nature, and on the other the world of ethics, side by side, then there is no overlap. The overlap is in the dream world, or in what the experimenter experienced as the world of magic where the phenomena spoke to him quite differently than did those of the natural world. Between the world governed by natural law and the world from which our conscience speaks to us, there for our everyday consciousness lies the dream world. However, as here is the waking world, here the dream world, and here the world of sleep, this leads us directly to the idea that in actual fact, during sleep, the gods speak to human beings. This is not a natural process, but an ethical one. And when we wake up, it manifests as the divine inner voice, as our conscience. In this way, the three worlds come together, and we can understand two things. On the one hand, why the dream world protests against natural laws, and on the other, how this dream world overlaps with another world, the reality of which is hidden from everyday consciousness, the world where ethical concepts originate. If we find our way into this world, then we discover the further reaches of the spiritual world, where natural laws hold no sway, only spiritual ones. Whereas in dreams, natural and spiritual laws are all mixed up together, because the dream world is a transition between these two realms. Thus, we've looked from one perspective at how human beings are integrated into these three worlds. The End of Lecture 11